Welcome to the Free Money Podcast. This is the show where we explore what's keeping the world from investing in progress, answer the questions on the minds of people in the know, and give you the Brooklyn Bay Area consensus about institutional investing that you desperately crave. Uh, I'm Sloan Ortel on the Brooklyn side of that. And I'm Ashby Monk. And uh, I I think I too often work for free instead of making money. But here we are. <laughs> here we are. Are we making money on this podcast yet? Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, you know, it's actually paying for it. Just, I just bought a new car with it. Beautiful. Uh, yeah. 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 Oh, is my accounting a little, <laughs> <laughs> we are, I did actually we do just have a, a new, uh, sponsor. Maybe we can. Oh cue, yeah. That's right. Portable sponsor. alpha. Yeah. I, the, uh, portable alpha, the solution for all of your investment needs, uh, comes now in convenient powdered form. Um, mm, thanks mm. to these two geniuses on this very podcast. It's interesting how portable alpha can be consumed in a beverage. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's funny too, because it's like usually portable alpha is really expensive. It is. Um, how much you know, is this? And how much is this portable it, alpha are we, that we're offering? Well, um, you know, it depends on obviously the size of the investment that you make, mm. right? Um, like, so if you were to buy, you know, 10 pallets of portable alpha, uh, we'd give it at, at a discounted rate, you know? Yeah. Um, but, you know, for ordinary sort of retail investors, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, 50 bucks is probably the probably the starting point. Yeah, I think we should also mention that the first uh, the first amount of portable alpha is free. Yes, it's just yes. that in order to buy that first amount, you also need to buy at the same time 99 amounts. Yes, yes, that's right. So yeah, but the, the um, first bit's free, but you can't yeah. get it on its own. Yeah, it's just important that you use our accounting convention as you're evaluating your portable alpha purchase. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, which it's, that's perfectly reasonable to impose on your customer. And the more problems that you're trying to solve with portable alpha, the more expensive it becomes. Yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah, I, I probably, uh, you know, misjudged the negotiations there by throwing out a number first thing. The, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you just hit up with 50 bucks. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, does I, I not you know, include shipping. It does include handling, but yeah, not shipping. Yeah. And, uh, you know, given that this is a financial services product, um, we, you know, that we may also include some, uh, some performance fees and, uh, administrative fees on top of that. Um, you know, and then there's of course the mailing fee in addition to shipping and handling. There's um, a couple of like minor transaction fees uh, as yeah. well, and uh, the management fee is paid annually, um, independent of yeah. how fast you consume it or whether it actually fills you up or anything. Do we just charge yeah. that? Yeah, we also reserve the right to send you more portable alpha at any time and uh, and charge you for it. Yeah, yeah. It's basically it's like that old uh, CD club. <laughs> where we just send you CDs and we charge you bunches of money. Um, but important to note that Portable Alpha, relative to uh, actual products that are popular in the financial services industry, is a comparative bargain. Good point. Yeah. And um, the science of our Portable Alpha is no less dubious than the science of most alpha in financial markets. So we got that going yeah. for us. Yeah, and, and actually, you know, ours, um, you know, will you know help you prevent against uh, you know all sorts of winter maladies. It's got a nice dose of vitamin C in there, um, and it'll wake you up. It's got a whole bunch of taurine in there as well. Oh my goodness! I still <laughs> I didn't realize <laughs> portable alpha had taurine in it. That's yeah, oh, great. Really? Yeah, oh no, that's great because then you get vitamin C, you get taurine, and for the people on Wall Street, maybe you mix in a little bit of vodka or something. I don't know. No, not required. Oh, yeah. If you're in college and you're yeah. underage, you can get your portable alpha uh, virgin. 
But for the people there on Wall Street that are trying to think about how to celebrate the new year, Portable Alpha. Yeah, Portable Alpha, rum and coke. Uh, anyway. Are we going to put Portable We might need to put Portable Alpha up on the website pretty soon. Are we ready? Oh, yeah. No, I, I, there's a whole uh, you know, series of product lines out there um, that we'll be ready to take orders from before too long. Beautiful. Onward and yeah. upward. And then, and, and, then, uh, and then we're going public. You know, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're gonna list. Um, we yeah, some some list our podcast. Yeah, um, but what are we doing in this episode? We're looking back. It is the last episode of the year, and um, the decade, and the decade, um, and it has been rather a year and a decade. Um, you know, sure twelve, twelve free money episodes so far. Um, like what? What the hell have we talked about? Mm. We've talked about a bunch of stuff, and I think um, in the planning for this, we figured we would try to rehearse a little bit what were the key themes from our first 12 episodes. What were some of the things that we uh, we feel like we wanted to drive home as, as the kinds of things we're going to continue to talk about? Is that fair? Yeah. For me, the first, I think the most important one is is just like why we're doing this. And, and I would say, you know, the, the notion of free money for me has always been about trying to help the biggest pools of capital on earth, the pension funds, the sovereign funds, um, have more freedom to maneuver, to innovate, to, to be creative in the way they deploy capital, obviously to reduce the costs that wall street is taking out of them, but also, um, to, um, potentially solve big problems. And, uh, and so for me, it's, it's like first and foremost to explain to our audience of 22, um, years. Very nice people. Very nice people. Uh, excellent people. Yep. Excellent people. The best people. Um, who these organizations are and who runs them and, and what are they doing? And so, you know, this need to understand the biggest pools of capital on earth and to help explain to you know, normal people that aren't nerds like us, exactly what's going on is, is kind of a big part of what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it sort of emerged out of, I mean, I guess it was originally a dissertation idea, right. Where, you know, I had been like reading a whole bunch of, uh, of queer studies stuff and like, you know, read all this stuff about how assumptions of, uh, heterosexuality affect behavior, right? Like where, you know, you're presumed to be heterosexual by default. Um, and that kind of creates all of these unstudied standards. And, you know, I was kind of holding that up next to my financial stuff. And I was like, oh my gosh, unstudied norms. That's what we do in financial services. Um, totally. you know, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and let's, let's do our best to expose those. Right. Um, yeah. And, you know, ideally, you know, when you think about what free money ultimately means, liberated pools of capital, um, you know, I mean, what a wonderful world that would be where, uh, you know, socially linked pools of capital were able to invest actively on behalf of their, their stakeholders without arbitrary constraints placed there by, uh, folks who are trying to make money off of them. That's right. And I think in order like liberating this capital, freeing this capital first, we we're kind of obligated to explain perhaps again, that that the pools of capital we're focused on, the pension funds, the sovereign funds, they are the base of capitalism. They mm-hmm. Most of the risk capital out there in the world today comes out of an endowment foundation, pension fund, sovereign fund, insurance company. And because of their time horizon, they have very long time horizons. Many of the liabilities these organizations have um, extend 70, 80 years into the future. 
So that time horizon allows them to start thinking about really important things like, you know, gender equality, diversity, climate change, good governance, all these issues that in a very short time horizon often get explained away as non-financial or non-commercial, the longer your time horizon, the more you can actually begin to integrate those things into your decision-making because at a, at a long enough time horizon, they affect value. And, yep. and so we're focusing on these pools of capital because they're massive and they're the base of capitalism, but we're also focusing on them because of their time horizon and their ability to solve big problems in capitalism today. Yeah, because I mean, if you're the government of Norway pension fund, you own 1% of listed equities. What's good for the world is good for your portfolio. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. The, I mean, my first theme for this year uh, so far has been, um, if we were to explain it to someone on the street, they'd think we're crazy. Uh, you know, which, which keeps coming up when we, uh, we talk about, um, you know, the sort of collectively uh, or, or the individually, you know, kind of rational and collectively insane behavior yeah. um, that uh, kind of pervades, you know, uh, financial capitalism in the absence of uh, more awakening of, of its participants, right? So, you know, you have folks who are, um, you know, finding ways to make money by, uh, you know, snipping a dollar or two off of a financial transaction and, and really, you know, engaging in an arms race. Um, instead of, you know, building value. Um, and if I were to draw a chain of that, I would, I would sound like I was wearing a tinfoil hat and perhaps I am. No, you don't have one on today. This you don't have your CIO <laughs> hat on or your tinfoil hat on. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I've got my hoodie on, but, but I think so. So we're trying to study these organizations and these organizations oftentimes represent our greatest hope at solving climate change. If we need a trillion dollars a year going into climate solutions, where are we going to get it? We're going to get it from these yep. organizations. The problem is when you start to try to study them, you start unraveling these individually rational and collectively insane behaviors. And I think that that is kind of the next key message, which is your message, which is like, look, if we're going to actually have any chance – of, of moving this capital, we need to kind of meet these pension funds where they are. We don't get to like prescribe behaviors to them because they have a whole series of decision-making constraints that are just crazy. You yeah. Know, they don't do first-time funds. They have these prudent person rules that push them to be conservative. They, they have monopolies over their asset base, which means that the organizations themselves will never go out of business which then pushes the people that work at these organizations to actually try to optimize for them not getting fired in a permanent organization rather than doing what's best for the organization. And all of these things come together into this like weird murky space at the very base of our capitalist system. Very few people on earth begin to unravel this and understand what are the incentives they're setting. What are the incentives yeah. they're setting for private equity, for hedge funds, for all of it? And that's why that's why we're doing this. I mean, if you go back to the thesis you were going to do with me at Stanford, it was about unraveling all of this for a new audience. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I think, um, like, if I were to explain what, you know, the, the status quo is, right? Like, just imagine a, a standard pension trying to make an investment. I mean, to me, it's like, you know, imagine trying to build a building. Uh, and getting going through the zoning board permissions, um, only uh, you know you've, you've got like a hundred thousand or a million people 
who who might want to weigh in on what you're doing, not just you know the 17 busy buddies who show up at the meeting, um, and you know the relatively contentious local board. Um, so it's it's you know investing, but it's also politics and social uh, you know and, and the study of social cohesion at a level of abstraction much larger than we're used to thinking at. Yeah, and I think that's if kind of leads me into my next theme, which is that these organizations are the engine of capitalism, but they exist because governments wanted them. And, and so you're like, wait, what? So, so if the governments have basically set up the base of capitalism, how can capitalism be free? How can we have a free market? You know, th this is the challenge for me is I'm constantly trying to deal with like, how do we unlock capital for market-based solutions to all these things, recognizing that the capital itself at the core emerged out of a decision by a government to prefund a pension, a government to incentivize a foundation through the tax code, an endowment through the tax code, all these different entities, this pooling of capital that's gone on incredibly quickly since the 1950s, you can trace back to governmental decisions. And so this isn't about being like, oh, well, what would the free market do? Sadly, yeah. the, the market isn't free. So if, if for you to actually create market-based solutions, you need to realize that this is not just about you know, buyers and sellers agreeing on a price in a free market. This is about unraveling what's going on with these giant mega pension funds that are trying to play in the market while being constrained by government. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like, um, I think that, you know, the idea of free market, I mean, maybe, I don't know if this is a discrete theme, but, um, you know, I mean, uh, maybe it is free markets are kind of a pleasant fiction, right? Like the, um, yeah. it, it's like the, you know, a bunch of folks at the university of Chicago, you know, got together, Milton Friedman and co. Um, and, uh, you know, basically decided that any inhibition to market action is, you know, sort of tantamount to destroying social value. Um, and that's just a very persuasive theory that people tend to believe describes reality. That's right. You know, which, uh, and it's, and it's the same kind of like tinfoil hat stuff when you try to describe, when you try to point out that it's not real. Um, almost like sort of a collective Santa Claus that we've, we've, uh, cooked ourselves up. Oh, interesting. What are you suggesting here that Santa isn't real? <laughs> <laughs> I, I need to whisper because my daughter's nearby. <laughs> oh, so you, oh, so you you brought your kids up on the Santa lie. <laughs> oh, I did, I did. I want them to I, not. I don't want them to trust these adult figures, you know, without questioning authority. And so, what better way than to, you know, have them live a lie? <laughs> <laughs> it's no fun to grow up not believing in Santa. Exactly. Um, you know, but but with the, the concept of the free market, it's actually actively harmful sometimes because mm. you know the um, folks will will defer decision making to this amorphous entity. There's actually really good literature, um, you know, comparing the way that we talk about the free market to the way that we talk about deities in faith traditions. Mm. Um, you know, where it's like you know the god of the market will come and look after us all with their beneficent hand. Um, you know, value all things accurately and allocate all resources as they need to be allocated. Totally. You know, the funny you know, which, thing is exactly what you're talking about, though, is it, it's like the market-based logic and the governmental logic, they flow into each other. Yeah, there's no conflict, really. Like, go back and look up all the innovations and, over the last 50 years that have come out of government, like whether it's the internet or, you know, all these like, 
clean energy um, innovations that have come out of the lab system. Uh, it's incredible. You know, core jetpacks. Core jetpacks came out of the government. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think we had uh, no. Velcro. That was a big. <laughs> oh, that wow. was a big one. Oh, yeah. That's. I mean, you want to talk about making the world a better place? But for real, though, like uh, the you know the idea that you know some sort of uh, governmental or social body has no place in free market capitalism is the kind of thing that you could only believe if you were to espouse a very mm. fundamentalist view mm. uh, of what it would mean to be a free market capitalist. Yeah, I mean the the markets are the the most amazing. Um, aggregation of signals. It's, it's a way to democratize planning, right? That's what's powerful. And, yeah. and so we can use the market to like plan for capital allocation and where we should be building companies and how much it should cost. And, and I think that's why I find it's just so compelling to try to build market-based solutions to things, but they're, they're all just tools here. And I think when we go back and we realize that the capital that we're using in these markets usually can be traced back to some governmental choice. It then reminds you that when you see hedge fund dudes buying, um, as I, you know, I think maybe you noted that today on Twitter, Sloan, I can't remember. Uh, <laughs> oh, pension funds can have a little alpha as a treat. Oh, no. Oh, you know, that was so good. That was so good. Um, I was actually, I saw something else today where, you know, one of these hedge fund guys is uh, buying a $250 million um apartment in New York. And oh, yeah. that comes after the $150 million house in Florida and all the, and it's like, remind me where he's getting all this money. Isn't it from mm. pension fund LPs, endowment LPs, foundation LPs, sovereign fund LPs? Yes. It's government. Yeah. The government allowed these people to make this money because they said, we want to pool it and we want it to grow faster through financial markets. So, you know, this, this is the challenge when we're thinking about how do we solve big problems or how do we cut out Wall Street's fee machine? It's not as simple as saying, what would the market do? You have to, yeah. you have to balance all these different things. I mean, the market, it's, as I understand it, like the history of the joint stock company, you know, like it started off as like, how do we explore the new world, which is this right. like objectively very government linked thing. Right. Um, you know, and by limiting liability and pooling capital to invest in big ventures, you know, folks could, you know, back ships without recourse to themselves, you know, without the risk of going absolutely broke if, you know, folks were to meet their end uh, in in that journey. Yeah. Um, and brutal as that is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's interesting. Th this takes me to my next theme, which is like, how do we bring, if we really do need these, these organizations to innovate, how are we going to do that? Like now, now the listeners realize that the base of our capitalist system exists in this kind of government context. And oftentimes the people governing these plans are political. They are either appointed yeah. by politicians or they are politicians themselves or they represent some stakeholder group. And, and this is where I've spent a lot less time thinking about changing governance and a lot more time thinking about how technology will usher in a new um, a new set of inputs for how we generate return, but also by starting pension funds on the innovation journey in technology, we can end by changing governance. But starting mm. with governance is really hard because these boards of directors often don't want to vote themselves out of power. 
you know, they, you can't walk up in front of CalPERS board and say, look, there should only be seven people on this thing. You know, most of you people shouldn't be here. That doesn't work yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah. There's a real politic to this whole thing um, that is kind of distressing to consider. Um, you know, where like you, you think about like what would make like why would a pension fund be interested in adopting ESG, which, you know, I think you and I can accept as a good, right? Like it is, you know, if to have an, an asset owner fundamentally interested in, uh, you know, the way that its companies behave in the open market, like good thing. Um, totally. But, but why would someone want to do that? Um, you know, <laughs> well, and like, I, yeah, I mean, I could, I could answer that question straight, but I, I think I know where you're going. It's like, it becomes a political question for people when it should. Yeah. You know, this is partly why I actually don't mind this fiduciary test we have today that keeps people focused on commercial success because it allows us to push back on the board members. And when we can show board members that ESG actually helps you understand the assets you're holding better and thus allows you to make more money because you're taking a longer term view, all these things, then in a way you're, the boards are forced to think about it. Yeah. You know, I don't know yeah, exactly. if I love the fact that they might have more discretion. You know, I think <laughs> I, I want to do a judo move on their constraints and, and force them to behave well because they're yeah. so unpredictable as it is. At least the, I can predict that if it if it's something that makes money for a pension fund, the pension funds will do it. That's yeah. a useful tool in our tool belt. And, and that's kind of a theme, too, is like people do things that make money. Um, that's right. You know, like, and, and I, I think that, you know, a lot of... Except for politicians. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, they may be making some money on the slide, on the Ooh, side. Yes, I've noted that um, in our current, yeah. current political setup. Yeah, yeah, that great... Um, Which hotel great should we stay at? Sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. The, well, it's, hey, it's right by the White House. That's the perfect. Trump hotel. No, that's perfect. Um, we should the, host uh, and there's the, a, the, G, the G7 at a golf club, too, while we're at it. Well, yeah, I mean, and of course, there's that great conspiracy theory about the folks trading our or the folks trading volatility around like trade war announcements oh. and, you know, like all those other great things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, which, you know, I mean, it it's one of my favorite conspiracy theories out of nowhere. Um, it is but, a good one. But as an investor, though, like, you know, cash flow is kind of the scoreboard. Um, right. You know, and and like the and folks are incented at the, you know, the level of like the manager that an asset owner contracts with, but also like the ultimate, the board ultimately is responsible for maximizing the value of the holdings, mm. you know, that's, I mean, that is it. And, and so it's so funny, like <clears throat> we are trying to free this money to operate in a free market according to logic we understand so that we can use that logic to direct the capital to do things that are socially constructive. Mm -hmm. But it is very hard, you know, to think about how we would rewrite the rules, right? Like what, yeah. what would the rules be? Um, and so, you know, for the first part, I think most of this podcast is, is simply about what are the rules and how do these investors actually behave? And then, yep. you know, maybe in season 12, we'll say, look, here's how the rules should change. I mean, I have a lot of ideas how pension funds can invest better. But I think my big kind of um, academic project, I think for the next 10 years, I've actually been in the process of setting this out, is to begin to think about what are all the rules that govern these pools of capital? You know, what are they? And can we understand the, um, 
the effects they have on the deployment of that capital. Yeah. Uh, and, and from there, then, you know, then we can start to think about constructive changes to the system by targeting the base of capitalism. Everybody's like, oh, we need capitalism to work better. Everybody's talking about that. Mm-hmm. But like, how many people are hosting podcasts like this talking about the base of capitalism? I haven't, I haven't seen any. This is the only one. It's, it, it's really understood. I mean, I think that it's, we're, we're quick to discuss symptoms of, of the sort of malfunctions in capitalism where it's like, you know, people will say every billionaire is a policy failure. Um, you know, people will say that the system works for some people, but not for others. Um, but you know, the, yeah, there's like so much leakage, um, in the construction of how we allocate capital that it's like, huh? um, you know, and exactly. which is again, why I wind up feeling freaking crazy every time, <laughs> every time I talk out loud about what it is. I know every time we turn off this podcast, I just go and run into a brick wall a few times. Yeah, I just get in the shower in the fetal position, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just, you know, just cry a little bit. It's healthy. It's healthy. My, my therapist says I'm functional. No, so it's good. great. Yeah, no, it's fine. It's fine. It's all good. I think that's enough uh, for my themes. All my other themes that I have listed here kind of tie into the ones I already mentioned. I've got a couple, um, you know, that are kind of more, kind of more forward looking, yeah, oh, um, yeah, which is sort of like, you know, advi- I mean, if you think about like, how would one of these pools like orient itself to survive the next decade. Mm. Right. Uh, um, you know, cause like if we know anything, we know that, you know, a prediction is like not worth the paper it's printed on. Totally. Um, you know, so I think the, the first kind of line item I have is like, or piece of advice, I guess, is be more than the sum of your partnerships. Hmm. Um, you know, meaning like a, uh, you know, an asset owner that holds a bunch of interests in, you know, l- limited partnerships, like, you know, private equity funds and so on and so forth, um, must, <laughs> uh, endeavor to be more than just a source of capital, like a real partner with those folks and must endeavor to kind of build knowledge through those relationships, which I, I think that. of as a very, I think that's a you point. Uh, yeah, that, like, that's a, that's a strong one for me. Um, I would give that a, a strong seconding. Uh, and that goes to this alt data piece that goes to the, the drive, the drive of partnerships with managers and, and really just about, a stronger alignment of interest between the asset owner community that, that we generally think about and the asset manager community, which is often relied on to manage the capital of the asset owners. You know, we, we tend to spend a lot of time talking about the Canadian pension plans or some of the big, you know, sovereign funds that can manage the money on their own. But the reality is most of the asset allocators, asset owners, pension funds rely on their managers. And so finding a way to, bring the knowledge and all those partnerships more coherently into the pension fund so the pension fund can make smarter decisions. That's going to be a really big part of preparing for the future, for the next decade. What are the disruptions coming? Who better to talk to than all of your asset managers out there dealing day in and day out with disruptions? And if you can find a way to aggregate all those weak signals coming from all of your managers and unravel strong signals, then who knows? Maybe you'll actually be able to move assets around in a way that adds value. That's the hope. But you know, but a, a further sub- subtext to that though is like, why compete necessarily? You know, um, like if you're if you're going to be you know thinking about yourself as a, a partner, um, you may not necessarily tr- want to uh, you know be engaged in this hunt for alpha. Uh, which, you know, we mock pretty openly. Uh, <laughs> but everybody's going to uh, get it, Sloan. Don't worry. Everybody's yeah. going to get their alpha. 
the portable alpha sign up right on the website. Um, but the, <laughs> um, but 75% you know, but, like, of our listeners are above average. We know that already. Yeah. Well, only geniuses listen to this podcast because, you know, their ears would melt otherwise. But, you know, if, if those geniuses happen to be at an organization that's a little under-resourced, you know, they might be better off, um, you know, figuring out uh, how they can partner with other under-resourced organizations to, uh, you know, just access not necessarily outperforming investments, but well-performing investments, that's right. right? Just access interesting, you know, durable ones. Mm. Exactly. Um, Collaboration as a means of innovation. I think I wrote a yep. book on that. Um, I've heard something about that. And, uh, and I had, you know, it's funny. I was giving a talk yesterday at the CFA uh, up in San Francisco and I found oh, cool. myself just kind of like talking during my talk about how as organizations like pension funds transition from certain sizes to other sizes, like 10 billion into the 50 billion range, inevitably the model of institutional investment you're running has to shift. You can't run the exact same model when you get to be really big than when you are small. Especially yeah. if you are running an endowment or a Canadian style pension plan, which is a very specific type of investment model. Um, and so those organizations, as they're transitioning from one model to the next, will want to collaborate, partner with each other, figure out which is the next model that they should be working on. And, uh, and so the, all of that collaboration coming together is about helping these under-resourced investors find ways to continue to achieve your objectives and, and not necessarily see each other as big competitors out there for that alpha. But as you say, as kind of partners in this higher level project, which is, you know, long-term sustainable performance. Yeah. And, and that, that ties actually right into the next, you know, sort of, uh, theme or slash pronouncement that I have just, you know, don't beat the index, build a better one. Oh yeah. Um, you know, like, um, cause that, you know, I think it's, it's, an, it's sort of really provocative to imagine that perhaps the benchmark that you're using is not the ideal yardstick. And then what would, what would be, you know, this, for me, it's funny, this goes to the problem of governance though. Again, it's like, there were a lot of great indices being built using, you know, all the new data that we can collect that offer differences to the cap weighted index. Um, most of it, for those people out there who don't understand how these indices are built, an index is like a, a basket of securities that offer a, a kind of market return, right? So a public yep. market return, a U.S. market return, whatever it is. And most of these baskets of securities are calculated based on a cap weighting, which means they kind of look at the market capitalization of the stock. And as those market caps change, they either increase the amount in the index or they decrease it. So you, what you end up doing in these cap weighting um, methodologies is buying more of companies that are expensive and buying less of companies that are cheap, which is not awesome. That's not actually what you want to do as an investor. And so the sooner you can build indices that have a different type of methodology of construction, the better. You want to equal weighting or if you ideally you can get down into the details of the companies and build different methodologies. There's a company called Syntax in New York that has tried to do this very well. Um, SSPY is the ticker symbol, stratified spider. 
And huh. their, their notion of stratification is their, their methodology for building out a new index. But here's the kicker. The board see these indexes, indices, as active management. Because for them, they're looking at the index that they've approved, which is, you know, ACWI or S&P or whatever it is. And if there's deviation from that, then they're like, oh, so this is an active bet. Even if you think you're running a passive portfolio, the boards of directors often don't see it that way. They want to understand why is it different than the benchmark? This isn't passive. And so a lot of CIOs will say... These indexes, these benchmarks are great, these new ones, but until my board gets comfort with it, I can't do it. So yeah. it's just super hard. Yeah. yeah, it's I mean it's a big problem to like bring into uh you know the 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 four like a completely new yardstick. Um but you know, I think also just by being an active owner of the shares that they have, um these asset owners have the opportunity to just improve the the beta returns, which are the sort of, you know, average, cheap, readily available returns that you can get by buying, you know, the same old plain old index, um, which is sort of like a, a weird, again, tricky subtext, which I guess is my, I'm Sloan tricky subtext or tell. That's my, uh, <laughs> tricky subtext. That's, 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 that's my, uh, my <laughs> punk band name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's very good. It's very good. Well, it's been an interesting, uh, uh, it's been an interesting 12 episodes and I think, we're sort of just starting to scratch the surface of, of topics here. I mean, you can imagine if we're talking about the base of capitalism, then there's endless topics to talk about. But, um, so far, it's been really fun. I think, yeah. you know, differing perspectives and trying to talk to a different audience than I normally do, which is a bunch of, bunch of fellow nerds. Uh, that's who I like to talk to generally. And this has been really fun. Yeah, there's there's someone listening to this right now who's going, what are you saying? I'm not a nerd. What am I, not a nerd? Uh, you're saying I'm not nerdy enough for you? You are. Uh, um, you are nerdy enough. You one person. Come yeah, come, exactly. You're perfect just you the way you are. Great. If you made it this far into this podcast, you are a nerd. Actually, <laughs> now that I think about what we talked about, if you're still listening. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I, the, I, I mean, you know what? I love Whoever's still person, listening, yeah. if you email me, I may give you $10 and you give this code word bananas. <laughs> um, but, you know, in, in absence of that, like, I think. Oh, uh, I love it, it. It's time for our, our end of end of show tradition, which is uh, the uh, the Dear Ashby segment, wherein um, I right. ask you three questions that have come up. Uh, from the listeners. Hit me with them. Are you prepared? Are you ready? I think so. I saw some of your notes uh, earlier, so I think I have some prepared ideas. I don't have prepared answers, but... Oh, uh, so what is pi to 35 digits? <laughs> <laughs> um, right. I can give you three. <laughs> um, ha- have tensions begun uh, diligencing real estate investments differently given the threat posed by tr- climate change? Um, how long until coastal property is uninvestable? Pretty soon on the last one. Uh, and I'll tell you why in a second. I love that you asked this. It's almost like I planted this one with you, but because it's such a big topic for me these days. Um, you know, there's a, there's a massive increase in the demand for this type of data where, you know, long-term investors are oftentimes the terminal holders of these assets, right? So they're going to buy real estate and then they're going to hold it for 30, 40, 50 years. And so for them, they're thinking, 
you know, is this building going to be insurable? Is this mm. building going to be underwater? Um, what are the implications of buying this building in a, in a vulnerable place for my CapEx and my OpEx, my capital expenditures and my operating expenditures for holding the asset? You can imagine in a world of climate change that's really volatile, for example, where you have freezing and unfreezing and then you have incredibly humid summers and then you have a storm, just all that volatility and temperature will require, for example, a parking lot to get repaved more often or having to paint walls sooner or re yep. replace handrails, you know, all this basic stuff actually mm -hmm. needs to be modeled. So there's a demand for this data. Like I've literally never seen it. I think this forest fire epidemic we've had here in California, the bushfires in Australia, the incredible yep. volatility of temperatures in places like Greenland on and on, right? People are starting to freak yeah. out. And and the long-term investors who are usually huge investors in real estate are like, what do we got? Now, the problem is most of the signals out there are these kind of green, yellow, red climate signals that aren't really useful. So hmm. so the big, you know, the economist did a story on this and they were like listed off like 12 different companies that are trying to deliver these climate risk signals to all types of actors, governments, companies, investors, etc. But like the in my mind, like the big challenge from here to, you know, 2020 and beyond is taking these climate risk signals and connecting it to the actual assets. So you aren't mm. just thinking, hey, this is in a red zone. What does that mean? Like, what does a red yeah. zone mean? Like, connect that red zone for me to some sensitivity around my capital expenditure. That is something yeah. a pension fund board will be able to handle and say, oof. So if we discount it like this, the valuation is that, and I don't want to do that. That's yes, like the type exactly. of logic investors understand. A board looking at a, an ESG report where some of the assets are yellow, some are green, some are red, they don't know how to translate that into a risk score that they need to apply to an asset. It's really hard. So that's yeah. what needs to come next. Yeah. And a lot of the pronouncements that I, like I saw a, a piece from the Union of Concerned Scientists about this, where they were like, um, they put out this press release that was really scary. Um, it was like 1 million Florida homes worth $351 billion will be at risk from tidal flooding. Uh, and a, there's an additional five billion in annual property tax revenue in jeopardy. Wow! Um, it, and that's scary. But think about the vagueness of at risk and in jeopardy. Super, uh, super vague. You know, <laughs> <The> most vague. <laughs> you know, it, like imagine that we told these real estate investors what the cost of resiliency would be, and if they don't build the cost of resiliency into their performance today that these buildings may not be insurable, which is another way of saying you may never be able to sell this building. If you can't get yeah. insurance, most professional investors won't buy it. Yeah. So the, this, this is like the coming two, three years, we're going to get really good at converting these climate signals into metrics that investors understand. And, and that means that the, investability of the coastal property you asked me about isn't really a function of whether or not climate change is happening or not. It's a function of how fast we get this data yeah. and the metrics into the hands of insurance companies and investors.
So if you're owning coastal property and you're like, I think I got time until yeah. this 2% wheelie dealy. No, you don't have time because actually the, the problem isn't have to do with, you know, sea level rise today. The problem is insurance companies looking at sea level rise 12 years from now and changing the insurance. And you've seen those insurance rates change for the forest fire risk. Yeah. Yeah, and it will, and, and I mean, the a small change in the cost of insurance just can wipe out the entire financial return of an asset. Totally. Yeah. Uh, the uh, which you know, I guess ties right into this next question, which is, what is the biggest surprise you can imagine happening next year? Right. My idea. I believe technology will do stuff I did not expect. That's what I believe. That's- that's a surprise. <laughs> uh, here's the real. Here's the one that I also was like, why? Hmm, why don't we have static electricity powering phones? Oh, that's cool. You know, like a, there's that little thing you can buy that allows you to have solar electricity charging your phone when you need it. You know, if I run out of phone, run out of my battery, like, can't I just like take my shoes off and get my socks on the carpet and, you know, find a way to charge my phone? Yeah. I mean, that'd be awesome. Like the, that'd be surprising. I mean, I guess it is pretty cool already when you can like, you like run your socks on the carpet and they, uh, you know, you get that little shock and then you can, you control your friends and family with that. Yeah. But you know, that's, that's, I mean, the other one that I wrote down is like, a minor civil war because of a certain impeachment, but let, let's not go there. You know, just the, yeah, the small matter of the fundamental <laughs> nature of governance. Uh, you know, I don't really want to talk too much about civil war, but yeah, well, yeah, I mean, that would be that, surprising, that kinda, but not crazy. My biggest surprise next year would be nothing bad happens at all. Oh, that would be uh, mega surprising. Yeah, yeah. You know, like the, the, it's like, I mean, for the impeachment reason, the Brexit reason, like, you know, I mean, um, I, I would, I would be genuinely shocked, you know, when we do this, the next version of this pot of this, you know, wrap up podcast mm. next year, if, um, you know, the new Brexit hasn't jeopardized the good free Friday agreement and, you know, Great Britain is still like one, uh, or sorry, the, the United Kingdom is still a United Kingdom with the Northern Ireland, you know, stuff intact. Right. <laughs> <know>. Uh, <laughs> I mean, if we're still, you know, the constitutional republic of the United States and American democracy, uh, you know, survives unharmed. Uh, Feels precarious. I have to say for for posterity, it's not posterity, right? Um, But yeah, you're for for butt reasons. For butt reasons. (laughs) (laughs) No, I believe I'm referring to posterity. Yes, exactly. Uh, I think, you know. I think we we're in this moment in time. I'm scared. I look at, I yeah. look out around the world. I see the the entrenched political interests, and and I am. I think I'm legitimately freaked out about where we go with what's going on in, in Washington right now. Leave aside like the the Brexit stuff and the nationalism, and um, it's it's a it's a scary moment in this country where. You know, we're impeaching a demigod and uh, there's a lot of people who they are um, hard to convince of, Yeah, you know, you would look at the, the merits of the case and say, seems pretty clear that this dude tried to influence a foreign power to investigate a political rival. In fact, the top political rival 
but still the there's a huge percentage of people who just don't see it and so it's yeah. a scary moment i put that impeachment uh actually removing him from office at about a 10 to 15 percent probability uh like the i mean just because like I, I you know i know i've talked my dad is a like super republican i was talking to him about this um, and he was like, what do you think the State Department is set up to do exactly, if not pressure foreign governments to cohere to, to, to like adopt our views? Mm. You know, yeah, which, they, are, like, they are, but just not personal agendas. I mean, it's exactly, yeah. he, he's not wrong, but it, it, <laughs> yeah, he, exactly. you're not supposed to use that, you know, state institution for personal gain. That's the whole point. Yeah. Many hoses. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but all right, let's talk about Christmas, which is way more fun. Let's do um, that. Why do so many Christmas traditions stress big, scary animals that lurk in the forest and hunger for blood? Um, in particular, the, the European Krampus. Uh, what is and, that one? You know, what is a Krampus? Kramp- Krampus is a horned anthropomorphic figure uh, described as half goat, half demon, uh, who during the Christmas season punishes children who have misbehaved. Um, and yeah, he's like, like he's, he's actually, Yeah. I mean, in a lot of Central Europe, it's like pretty popular. They still have like Krampus marches and uh, all kinds of crazy stuff like that. Um, and then there's the Yule Cat, which is even crazier. Um, the Yule Cat is a huge and vicious cat that lurks about the snowy countryside during Christmas time and eats people who have not received any new clothes to wear before <laughs> Christmas Eve. <laughs> Interesting. So... <laughs> I was thinking about this one and I was like, look, I think Christmas is part, there's like two parts here. On the one hand, it's about family and feeling the love and like sitting around and playing some like cheesy music and putting the fire on. And on the other hand, it's all about disciplining children. I mean, yeah. like this elf watching you on a shelf, that's the creepiest, that's so creepiest creepy. shit ever. Naughty yeah. list. He's checking it twice. He knows what's up, you know? Yeah. I mean, they're just inculcating kids into the surveillance state. You they know? are. <laughs> and, the, and this like creepy dude comes down your chimney and puts coal in your sock. Dude, Christmas is about putting fear into children to get them to behave. And frankly, I kind of like that because my kids are crazy. But it's also about family. <laughs> You know, it's also about family. So it's like, yeah, you know, and then it's also about, you know, teaching kids don't, don't trust adults because we lie to you. That's also what it's about a certain, at a certain point. That's, that's a great lesson. Uh, <laughs> you know, don't trust all these authority figures when they tell you that this dude, <laughs> this dude is real. <laughs> Eventually it all comes out and you're like, huh, what else are they telling me? Yeah, when did when do people stop believing in Santa? I think like for me it was probably uh I think I really believed in Santa until third grade, mm. but like in second grade I started to get like suspicious. Yeah. Um, you know, but I would just like cry every time someone suggested it was it wasn't real. Yeah. I don't know. My sister pulled the have... best troll move on me ever when I like I she was in like fourth or fifth grade and uh I was like, you know Santa's not real, right? And she just bursts out crying. <laughs> And and is totally screwing with me. Uh, oh, that's amazing! So it was it was she, she like was she was just like how how dare, how dare you? you? I'm I'm gonna get you! I'm gonna get you! Yeah, I mean my my son kind of like messed me up because he um he spotted me putting uh, an Easter egg 
around around Easter. And within 10 minutes had unraveled the entire gig on all of it from teeth fairies to, you know, it was like, he was like five years old. I was like, Jesus, that was fast. But, yeah. but my other kid is still going. So, you know, kind of, yeah. kind of depends. Yeah. Just got to pretend until, you know, to keep the joy alive for as long as possible until, uh, you know, all the mystery is gone Yeah, and, and then, you know, magic is dead and, <laughs> And then they can sleep better at night knowing that Krampus is not out there. Uh, yeah. Neither is the Yule cat to uh, I, drain your blood. I love the Yule cat is an Icelandic idea. Uh, and like, I just love the idea of e- eating people who have not received new clothes to wear before Christmas Eve. Like, the, it's just you random. Know. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, I mean, we, we make fun of Santa Claus and Christmas and the, like the Hallmark tradition as like kind of a consumerist thing. But, um, you know, that at least to me is like, oh, well, cool. There's like a more of a, a root in there, mm. um, of, of consumption inside of, uh, Christmas than, you know, we might, cause I, I think that's pre Christian, mm. um, you know, so anyway, Anywho. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, have there a is great no free holiday. Market. You too. <laughs> and to all of you listening, we love you very much. We do. Uh, if there's still an earth, we will see you next year. We will. Uh, we will. Yeah. Uh, um, but we love you. Bye. Bye.